Well, I'm not a hashtag person. So I can't really speak to some of the most popular hashtags, but I've seen or heard some of them. One of them was hashtag loving life, hashtag loving life. And I know what, I know what it's about. It means I'm in a place of enjoyment, a place of joy where I'm really feeling fulfilled here in my life. And as I was thinking about a title for this subject matter here this morning in John chapter 12, something very different came to my mind. And that's because it's from the text of Scripture. And I see that it didn't get it on one line like it is on, on my notes up there, but you should hate your life. And that's the title of this morning's message. You should hate your life. Now, before you get up and, and leave, say, it, it's a provocative title. It's, it's meant to be thought-provoking. No, you haven't walked into the most dis- depressing message of all time. By God's grace, this will actually be encouraging by the time it's said and done. So for those of you who are screenshotting this and sending it to all your friends about the kind of church you go to and why it is you're never happy, it's all your preacher's fault, uh, that's not what this is going to be about. But you should hate your life. And the underlying idea of this title comes from the book of John and many other places in the Bible as well that we'll touch on a little bit. But John chapter 12 was a text we considered during Friday's men's Bible study. And several of the verses were impactful to me, but one in particular piqued my curiosity. And that is John chapter 12, verse 25. Now this often occurs with verses that are challenging to understand at first glance. So oftentimes we'll be going through a study or I'll be reading God's word and I'll come across something and I'll say to myself, that is hard to make sense of. I'm not sure exactly what that means. Sometimes it's not that. Sometimes it's just, wow, what an interesting way to say that. A principle that maybe I've already been aware of in other terms, but now it's being said in a different, in different language, in a different way that is really kind of catches your eye. And that's the language that is used here in John 12.45 is you should hate your life. Now that's a summary. We'll get into it in a little bit. And after some study, I found that verse 25 represents another take on a common biblical theme. And the the biblical theme is, is this. Acquiring eternal life in time and in eternity, it's conditioned on letting go of temporal life. So let me say that again. Acquiring or making the most of eternal life, redeeming time, in time and, and for eternity, it's conditioned on letting go of temporal life. And that's true in terms of our positional standing either in God's family or not in God's family. Some say in Adam, that's how we're positionally identified through our birth, the race of Adam, and by nature or by association, then a race of sinners because all have sinned, Romans declares in chapter 3. So all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're born into a human race, a race that has as its head, as, a, as its originator, first, the first human being, Adam, and flowing from his sinful choices, we've inherited a nature that is influenced by sin, and also we choose then on our own sin itself. So we're sinners by birth and by choice, and we're identified then with Adam. Now the alternative to that is to be identified, the Bible says, as being identified with Christ. And so positionally it's true that if I don't let go of this life, this temporal life, and everything associated with it in terms of 
the things that I've been trusting in for my eternal destiny, my eternal salvation. Now, in this, in this world, the temporal world, the physical world, in this world, there are many things that people are trusting that they believe will increase or add to the, the odds that they would one day go to heaven when they die. And so a part of positionally having the life that God can offer, we're going we're gonna to describe that as real life, but as we're going to describe the real life that God offers, the only way to access this is by letting go of the other things that I was seeking to find life in, in terms of eternal life, but we're talking about, um, in this moment, position, the position, eternal life from the debt that was owed for sin. Sometimes we call that justification or first tense salvation, but salvation from sin's penalty. And in order to have that life and have that salvation, instead of the death that was associated with my birth into the race of sinners, being a sinner myself, so instead of having that, in order to have the new life that's available in Christ, I would have to have let go of the other things that I was trusting in. So even when you think about the word metanoia, the word for repentance that's found sometimes in the New Testament, the word means to change your mind. And there's nothing wrong with the word. It's not a dirty word. It's a biblical word. The issue is how do you understand that word? The idea is I need to let go of what I was trusting in, change my mind about what I was, what I was putting my faith in, and now instead put my faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, in terms of letting go of temporal life being the key to acquiring or experiencing eternal life in time and in eternity, that's the positional side of it. When we talk about the practical side of it, that's the part that applies to most of us here today. Because as I look around the room, I know I've heard your faith stories, many of your faith stories anyway, and I I know that many of you, all the ones that I'm, I'm looking at here anyway, have professed to have put their faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work on their behalf on Calvary, at some point in time in your life. Now at that moment you were born into God's family, your citizenship changed from being a citizen of this earth to a citizen of heaven. You were, again, adopted, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. God said, I'll never let you go. And so in that sense, when we talk about trading in the temporal life or letting go of temporal life in order to acquire or experience eternal life, we're talking about that experientially or practically in our day-to-day walk with the Lord. Are we really going to experience eternal life in the present and for all eternity? What does that going to involve? Well, it's going to involve the same thing that was involved in being positionally having our identity shift from being in Adam to being in Christ to go from being dead to being made alive. It's going to take letting go of this life in order to experience the real life that God has available to each and every believer. Now, some of you are saying, well, that's not something that's particularly new to me. Well, maybe you never heard it, though, in these terms that we're going to look at today. You should hate your life. Let's take a look. Now, turn, if you will, to John chapter 12. We're going to look at this whole section. So it's not just going to be that verse. And Lord willing, we're going to cover verses 23 through 26 here this morning, but we're going to read them with a mind towards getting some of this immediate context. Now let's begin with John chapter 12, verse 23. I still hear a few page turning. I still hear a few page turning, pages turning. Let's start with verse 23. But Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come 
that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now, in the context before that, some Gentiles are actually asking if they could see Jesus, and then his disciples come and ask him about that, and this is his response. But, the, but Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Verse 25, here's our primary text for this morning. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. There's where we get our title, you should hate your life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Let's unpack this a little bit. Now, again, in this immediate context, Jesus is discussing his reason for coming and his willingness to sacrifice his life for the benefit of, the others, of others. If you turn back to verse 23, remember that the reason that Jesus is said to have come into the world, though we do know he also makes an offer of a kingdom to the Jewish nation that's rejected, but he understands that that will happen in advance, so he can say, my reason for coming is to seek and to save those who are lost, not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. Paul can say of Jesus and his reason for coming that Jesus came into the world. He says, this is a faithful saying and it's worthy of all acceptance, right? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am number one. I am the chief sinner. Now, what a perspective for Paul to have. Do you see yourself that way? Now, you have to see yourself as having a need. You know, that's what we even sing the words to Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I have to see I have a need in order to reach out for, grab a hold of the rescue that Jesus Christ makes available through his sacrificial death in my place. I have to see that I have a need. But to see that I have a need, I have to see that I'm nothing, that I can't save myself, that apart from God's intervention to rescue me, I was hopeless and helpless and hellbound. I had no future to look forward to through my own merit or through my own effort. So I have to have that perspective. Well, when I, have, when I think about it in terms of Christian living, I still have to have that perspective. That's the tricky part. I had to have that perspective in order to trust God to do for me what I couldn't do for myself as it related to the penalty of my sin. But this is the part that Satan is so tricky with, the flesh is so tricky with, the world is so deceptive about. I have to continue to have that perspective that without him I can do nothing. I'm hopeless without you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. I can't do this without you. That's why I think some Christian gatherings have it wrong when consistently they make the focus of the messaging about what people need to do for God in their lives, how you need to change your life, fix your life, clean up your life. Now, does God want to change your life? Yes, he's in the business of transformation. He's in the business of changing us from what we were into something else, but who's doing the transformation? God's doing the transformation. He's transforming us, making us into the image of his son. Does God want to work through our lives? Does he want to shine his light through us? Does he want to accomplish his purposes through your life? 
Yes, but not because of your strength, not because you're buckling down and cleaning things up and checking off boxes and looking around and saying, look at me. Aren't I wonderful? That's why we don't sing that song that way. We don't sing, aren't I wonderful, wonderful, wonderful? Aren't I so very wonderful? We don't sing that, do we? Isn't he wonderful, wonderful, wonderful? But we have this tendency as believers to see our need at a point of salvation, a point of rescue from the penalty of our sins, and then to start leaning on our own understanding, relying on our own strength, doing it our way, pumping it out through our strength when God says, if you don't stay connected to the power source, me, the vine, you will produce absolutely nothing that's worthwhile. But if you stay close to me, stay intimate with me, lean on me, rest in me, have your eyes fixed on me, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, if you have that mentality, a mentality and a posture of complete dependence and ongoing dependence on God to do through you and for you what you cannot do for yourself, then that is something that God can use. But we have to be reminded of that. And so, in any event, we're talking about this being the context that Jesus is talking about how he's going to be willing to give up his life for the benefit of others, to sacrifice his life. And so we see in verse 23, but Jesus answered them saying, I can put it up on the screen for you maybe if I can get this out of my pocket. Jesus answered them saying, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Now Jesus is referring to his future sacrificial death here, which would make salvation available to all humanity. Now, including the Gentiles that were asking to see him, and that's our immediate context, is there are some people who aren't of a Jewish background that are asking to speak to Jesus and see Jesus. That's the context that he's saying, my death on the cross isn't just gonna be for the Jewish nation, it's gonna be for all men. Now, that is the story you should have had from the very beginning pages of the Bible. When, when God says to Adam and Eve, that you're going to have a future offspring. And I want to give you hope in the, in, in the face of this very hopeless situation. What was that situation? They had fallen on their faces, right? Who's, who's done that before? Okay, none, none of you. Okay, good. Bunch of self-righteous sinners. Okay. They had fallen on their face, right? And, and they'd had a big blowout in their life. Big blowout in their life. There's only, only one thing I don't want you to do. Ah, oh, let's do that. Now, we do that all the time, right? So we, we know that we would have been just as susceptible to that as, as Adam and Eve were, probably more so. That being said, just on the face of a big blowout in their life, what had happened? Perfection, if you want to ha- call it that way, this, this paradise was lost. Now, how does the story end? How does the story of the Bible end? Paradise is re- regained, right? Lost and now regained. But in the face of that, they're banned from the Garden of Eden. They're told there's going to be pain in childbirth. There's going to be, you're going to work your tails off just to survive. But then God gives them a ray of hope. Through your offspring, the serpent, Satan's head is going to be crushed. 
Though, though Satan will bruise your offspring, future offspring's heel, his head will be crushed. There will be victory in all of this. Now, were there Jews and Gentiles as God is making that promise? No, there's mankind, mankind. So the promise, God's concern for the rescue of broken, fallen, sinful mankind, it, it's, it's always been focused on the salvation of all men. Now, we could get into it. I don't have time this morning, but the nation of Israel is a vehicle for the Messiah to come. The nation of Israel is assigned or selected for a special task of being lights to shine God's light to the far corners of the world. Guess who else has been tasked with something very similar? You. If you're a part of the body of Christ, the church, the church has been tasked with being ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That it, it actually, Paul actually says that God would, would be pleading through us, that, that people would be reconciled to God, that God, God would literally want to be pleading through you into the lives of people that he's put you in contact with. Will you be reconciled to God? Is he going to do that through you when you're unwilling? The answer is no. He's not going to force that message to come through you. He's not going to give up on you, though, either. He's going to keep trying to get a hold of your thinking so that you could live out real life, the life that was, has, is eternal in quality in nature and that would have eternal value, that you could live that out and not waste the time that you've been given. But that's God's mission for you too. So, but even back to this context here, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's speaking of his sacrificial plan of salvation and rescue for all of humanity, including these Gentiles that are asking this question. Now, Jesus' death, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation were included in this concept of his glorification. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. That's not exclusively referring to his death. That's not exclusively re referring to how the Father has exalted him and given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on heaven and earth. Not exclusively that. We're talking about both his death, his resurrection, which was a victorious resurrection, a victory over death, hell, and the grave, his ascension into heaven, and his exaltation, kind of all of that is the glorification of Jesus. To glorify something is to enlarge it or to proclaim it or to lift it up or, again, exalt it. Now, verse 24, let's keep going with our immediate context here. Most assuredly, I say to you, so this is my plan, this is why I came to be glorified, but he's talking about his sacrificial death there. Most assuredly, then, in that context of sacrificial death, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies... It remains alone, remain, meaning it doesn't fulfill its purpose. But if it dies, it produces much grain. You see, from a spiritual perspective, spiritual life comes from death to self. Spiritual life comes from death. Now, this is a paradox. We'll touch on that in a, in a minute. It's discussed more in verse 25. But with death can come life, an abundant life here in this scenario where one single seed of grain, if, it's, if it dies in a sense, if, it's, if it germinates in the ground, it can produce a whole wheat plant. Now in the wheat plant, there's hundreds if not thousands of individual additional grains. Now do the math, right? How do you get a field full of grain? Individual seeds turn into individual plants, individual plants full of many, many different seeds. Those seeds then all 
germinate and are planted and they produce a abundant, an abundant harvest. This is the picture that Jesus is trying to portray here. The idea is unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it fails to fulfill its intended purpose, which is to grow into a mature wheat plant, which in turn produces many new kernels and eventually a plentiful harvest. Jesus was willing to die in order to bring about an abundant harvest of new life. Now, who is the harvest? You and I, believers. What did we get as a result of that? I have come that you might have life and that you'd have it abundantly or to the fullest. That was God's plan in coming so that we could be made alive, not, not just in time in terms of at a position in time, but over time and experience over time as we'd live life in a way that would redeem time. Jesus wanted to teach his followers the value of sacrificing temporal life in order to have eternal value, something of eternal value. The value of sacrificing temporal life for life of eternal value. Now let's look at verse 25, our our primary verse for this morning. He who loves his life will lose it. I hope you're tracking this thought here as it's developing. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So it wouldn't fit in the title block. Obviously, it didn't even fit the way it was. But you should hate your life, and in brackets, you should really put in your mind, in this world. You should hate your life in this world. That's, that's the exact quote that we have here, in a sense. He who hates his life in this world. And he's saying that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. Now, here we have one way of wording. One of the great, again, I used the word once. I'll use it again, paradoxes. Two things that seemingly don't go together. That's what a paradox is. One of the great paradoxes of Scripture. You have to lose life to gain life. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. At first blush, you have to lose life to gain life. Now, when I say great paradoxes of Scripture, this isn't the only place that you'd find this idea, and this is not going to be a, an exhaustive overview of where you can find this concept, but I want to share a couple because it's found, stated similarly, in every gospel account. Now, there's not a lot that is that way. In fact, the book of John has approximately 95% unique content to the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So you don't have a lot of times where you're going to have a very similar statement found in all four of the gospels. But here, turn to Matthew chapter 16. I just want to show you that this general idea is stated with slightly different terms in all three of the other gospels as well. Matthew 16. And we're looking for verse 25. If you didn't have a Bible this morning, I I just clicked it up on the screen. It's good for you to, if you have a Bible, not all churches do this, but you have one, uh, bring it along. You know, we try to do a little bit of page turning. What's the value of that? Well, how would you know much about God's story if you don't know how it's kind of laid out or how to find different parts of it? Also, just as a, as a plug, as an aside, the Bible is not a collection of many different stories. The Bible is one comprehensive story. It's, it's one book written by one author for one audience, which is human beings. God is the one author. He breathed his story through human instruments, human authors who wrote down his, what he inspired. And it's, the Bible says that he inspired every single word. 
that, that the words of the Bible were God-breathed. Now, they retained the individual author's personalities, their cultural backgrounds, some of the uh, unique bits about them, but in a way that God could collectively put together one story for his people that was intended to be read and understood. That's challenging. That's convicting at times. The God of the universe, the God of creation, wrote you a story. A story of himself, a story of yourself, a story of, in so many things, a story of redemption, a story of rescue. And he wrote it with the intention that it would be read. So when we put the word Bible on our sign out front, Heritage Trail Bible Church, do we really stand by that? Is that something where we're actually interested in God's story, God's word? Is it something that we're interested in reading? I'd recommend reading it from the front to the back and then starting over again. Have I done that a lot? No, four times roughly. Is that a badge of honor? No, it has nothing to do with saying who did it more times. The idea is I'm reading it because God's revealing himself chronologically. He's got, there's a beginning, a middle, and end. He's trying to tell us about himself. He's trying to tell us about ourselves. He's trying to tell us about how much we need him, that apart from him, we can't make it. But he's undertaken to make a way where there was no way. Now, I've just summarized the whole Bible right there. Now, go to some part of it and ask yourself, isn't that what it's saying? Isn't that what it's teaching? Maybe in a roundabout way, but isn't that what's there? So in any event, we're in verse, we're in Matthew 16, 24 here. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. This is giving up on self. This is losing or letting go of temporal life. Let him deny himself and take up his cross. Assume the hardships that are going to be associated with serving the Lord. The Bible tells us, or Jesus says later, that if you serve me, you are going to suffer for my name's sake. But then he keeps going with, and follow me. You're not leading. You're not directing. This isn't your plan. Now, catch this part. This is the way of saying the same thing as we're looking at in John 12, 25. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now read John 12, 25. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We're saying the same thing. Turn to Mark 8.35. Mark 8.35. We're going to go through these two quickly because they're very much the same thing. Mark 8.35 for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Giving up temporal life to actually gain real life or experience real life. Luke chapter 9, one more book to your right. Luke chapter 9, verse 24. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? So as you think about these phrasing, it's this idea of we have to let go of this temporal passing life. We can't be clinging to that. We can't be investing in that. We can't be focused in that and expect to experience the life that God has, the real life that God has planned for us, a life that has purpose and value and meaning and has, has, a lasting, has lasting implications associated with it in terms of value. So let's break into, dig into this verse a little bit more. We really have two parts to it when we think about John 12, 25. We have loving his life in this world and hating his life in this world. This person who could be doing one of these two things. One, loving his life and in this world qualifies that, just like it qualifies hating his life in this world. So those are two possible options that, that uh, each person could, is confronted with and each person could choose at any moment in time. So let's start with option one, loving his life in this world. Now love used here refers to having a great affection for something. His life refers to temporal human existence apart from God and, un- and under the influence of the sin nature or the flesh, Satan and the world. That's the kind of life we're talking about here. It's a little bit tongue in cheek because the Bible consistently is revealing that that's not really living. That's a dead man walking. That's living in death and decay and darkness. Three D's there, there for you. Death, decay, and darkness. That's not really living. That's what we think of by default as living. But that's not actual living. The temporal realm is not the realm of the believer. We're here with a purpose and a mission and it matters But we have an eternal perspective or ought to. The believer is not to have an earthly mind, an earthly focus, but a heavenly focus. And so that's what he's getting at here, is that loving this temporal life, that's what we're speaking of when he says loving his life. What life? Life apart from God. The the life that people think is life by default in this world. Now, this is made clear with the use of the phrase in this world, which qualifies the life being discussed. It's not just any life, but it's the world, a worldly life, which God is saying, if you're clinging to that, if you won't let go of that, then you're going to ultimately lose life, lose the opportunity to really live genuine real life. Now, I want to remind you that loving life in the world is the default. That's the default. Now, you say, well, yeah, I know that's the default for the lost around me. No, it's, it's the default for everyone by nature. That's the default for the believer that's not walking with his eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, with his, without his mind and his thinking focused on eternity. When you have that perspective, even as a Christian, you're loving life in this world. That's what you're doing. Now, you may not think of it in those terms, but that's what you're doing. That's what the lost individual, that's the only thing they can do. You actually have a choice. You have an alternative that's been offered to you now because you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. The Spirit of life and godliness has given me freedom over the law of sin and death. Choose who you're going to yield to. 
But that choice so much as anything is a choice of focus and occupation. Where am I going to be looking? Who am I going to be trusting? And where am I going to be resting and finding the resources for Christian living? Now, the one that is loving his life in the world, it says, will lose it. And the idea is clinging to temporal, physical, earthly life as you know it precludes experiencing the real life that God provides. They're mutually exclusive. Here's one verse that sort of speaks to how these are exclusive. They can't go together. You can't have them both at the same time. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. He says, If anyone is presently loving the world, the love of the Father is not presently in him. This isn't saying, this isn't talking about position. This is talking about experientially. Practically speaking, the love of the Father cannot be in you at the same time that you're presently loving the world. It's one or the other. This book was written to believers about how they could experience intimate fellowship with God. One of the things that was said to get in the way of that is loving the world presently. If I'm going around focused and fixated on the world around me, I cannot at the same time be focused on eternity. It's one or the other. And too often, isn't it this? I'm looking horizontally. I'm looking at the world around me. My thinking is influenced through the thinking of the world. My focus is on the things of the world, the priorities of the world, the perspective of the world. And the Bible's telling me that If that's true, I'm not going to, in that moment, be able to experience the real life of of abundant value that God has planned for me, that God wants me to experience. You can't have it your way and God's way at the same time. If you're clinging to temporal, physical, earthly life, that means you're trusting in yourself. You're focused on self. You're not looking to the Lord. And it precludes, again, they're... They can't go together. It means that you can't experience that real life that God provides. It can't be your way and God's way at the same time. To love life apart from God is to lose out on the life that God intended. If you spend your life grasping for the things of this world, you will ultimately lose everything of spiritual and eternal value. That's the paraphrase really here. And you have to remember at times, because it's so tempting. The world is so good at convincing us us that there really is value in the world. You have to be reminded that the world has nothing to offer except disguised emptiness. I say disguised emptiness because don't some of these things look shiny and flashy? Don't some of these things, aren't they associated with joy and happiness? Hashtag loving life because I got a new whatever. Hashtag loving life because I got a new whatever. Hashtag loving life because I had this temporal experience, right? Is there joy, happiness, smiles, laughter associated with those things? Yes. There's pleasure in it for a season. It's not lasting though. It's disguised It's disguised emptiness. Ecclesiastes 2.11 was written by Solomon. Solomon had absolutely everything, friends. He sought to find happiness in all kinds of places as he turned away from the Lord, the one who had gifted him with being the wisest man to ever live. 
Even the wisest man to ever live who's not looking at the Lord, trusting the Lord, walking in dependence on the Lord was absolutely miserable. So he looked everywhere to replace or find something that would satisfy his soul instead of the Lord. And this is his conclusion, Ecclesiastes 2.11. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done, building majestic cities and homes, and on the labor in which I had toiled. Indeed, it was all vanity or emptiness is what that word means, and grasping for the wind. There was no profit under the sun. So when you think about losing life, the one who's loving his life is going to lose his life. That involves positional loss for unbelievers, meaning they're going to spend all of eternity separated from God in the lake of fire. There's no way to sugarcoat that. By choosing temporal life instead of eternal life that God offers through Jesus Christ our Lord, they're going to experience eternal separation from God. Now, for the believers, it means losing life. It, it involves the loss of an experience, an experiential loss, moments in times that we could have experienced with God, lived with him, and thus had be used in a profitable way. That's what it means. Now we get to the other alternative here. So we have the one who could choose to love his life in this world, or you could make the choice to hate your life in this world. And as I started with our title here, you should hate your life in this world. Now what are we talking about there? Hating. Hating has the normal meaning of disliking something intensely. His life here again refers to this temporal life apart from God. Hating here though focuses more on preference rather than actual hatred. I don't prefer the life in this world to the life I have available in Christ. I don't prefer this temporal passing world over the eternal realm, the eternal spectrum that God has made available to me. That's, that's sort of the focus there. Through comparison to God's truth, do you learn to dislike any aspect of life apart from him? Do you learn to dislike any aspect of life that lacks a godly quality and character? Hating his life in this world, well, what do you get in in exchange, what's the alternative? Well, eternal life. Instead of living temporal life, you live eternally. Well, what is that talking about? It's not just talking about length of time. It's talking about quality and character of a life that you're going to experience here in time and also in the future. We're talking about a godly quality and character to life in time that I'm going to lose out on that if I'm loving the temporal world. But if I'm hating the temporal world, if I'm, if I'm deprioritizing the temporal world, then I can experience that real life that God has that is characterized by godly qualities and characteristics that he makes possible as he provides real life in and through me and gives me that abundant life that he's promised to me. Now, practically, this involves holding loosely all that is not eternal, Maybe make a note of that. What does it mean to hate your life in the world, the temporal life? It means to hold loosely all that is not eternal. Does it mean that nothing of the temporal realm is important? Nothing is worth caring about or having any interest in? No, that's taking it too far. Remember, we're talking about preference rather than actual hatred here. 
Prefer the eternal realm instead of this temporal realm. Don't get captivated by the temporal realm. Become captivated with your Savior so that you could then be captivated by eternity and eternal life here in time and again in eternity. Now, Jesus is speaking of choices. Jesus is speaking of attachments that believers are faced with. Making a choice between the temporal or the eternal. It involves willingly giving up on the things associated with the earthly realm. Willingly doing that. I, I see that these things might be enjoyable or attractive to my flesh, but I'm going to forego this for something better. We're not even always talking about temporal realm, foregoing the temporal realm, hating the temporal realm or that life. We're not even talking about sin a lot of the time. Now, obviously, God wants us to choose righteousness over ungodliness. We're talking about a godly quality and character of life when we're talking about eternal life in time. But some of it is just choosing, preferring the eternal over the temporal. I could do, I could invest in this, and would that be overtly sinful? The answer is no. But if I stay focused on this, what am I giving up in exchange? What am I, what am I not focused on that I could be focused on? Well, the Lord, growing in my knowledge, growing in my understanding, growing in my walk with Him, trusting Him, depending on Him, enjo enjoying Him, and people, the thing that God is so intensely interested in, people. Investing in them in an eternally beneficial way, in a spiritually beneficial way. That's what I'm trading. I, I, I'm investing in them in our friendship apart from the things of faith. Is that good? Yeah. I do that too. I think you do have to invest in people's, call them temporal lives, you have to invest in that if you want to have an impact on them in the spiritual realm, in the eternal realm. They don't care what you know until they know that you care. You've heard that, right? The takeaway here is never make time for people's temporal needs, but make time for their temporal needs because you're driven by or you're led by a desire to invest in them the way God is leading you to invest in them with a deferential perspective of selflessness and a sacrificial mindset that wants to Serve the Lord by investing in them. That's the, that's the idea there. Willingly giving up on the things associated with the earthly realm. Now, ask yourself. This is a little bit of the hard, this hard stuff here. Ask yourself. How tightly are you clinging to the things of this world? To the thinking of this world? Well, I'm not influenced by the thinking of this world. Get real. Yes, you are. I would need to talk to you for more than probably an hour to get a bunch of examples of things that you're parroting back that come from the world that are disguised as even good things that have no spiritual basis in them. You are influenced by it. Do you regard your temporal life as having secondary importance to eternity? Now you can say it. We can say the right things. Oh yes, of course I do. But, but isn't it true that very easily all of your time is occupied with passing things, temporal things, without you even really being aware of it? We have to be intentional and mindful and prayerful about these things. Are you willing to let go of the things of the world? 
Are you you willing to let go of people? Sometimes you have to do that. You don't quit caring for them, quit loving them, give up on them necessarily, but sometimes you have to realize, I can't keep being surrounded by this. I can't keep investing in this relationship because it's very detrimental to my spiritual walk and they're not showing any interest in the things of faith. Are you willing to let go of physical life itself? How desperately are you clinging to this world, to this life? Friends, we have a much better life waiting for us. Now, we don't have to become unhealthy and try to speed up how quickly we can go home, but we don't have to cling to this life either. Now, what's, the, what's said to be true of the one who is hating his life? In contrast to the one who is loving his life in this world and was losing life, the one who is hating his life in this world from this biblical perspective we're looking at, what will that person have? Will keep it for eternal life. Will keep life for eternal life is the idea. The believer placing secondary value on the temporal, natural, physical realms will receive in exchange real life of lasting value in time and in eternity. Now, this eternal life already spoke to it, but it's distinct from temporal life. It's distinct from temporal life in both duration and quality. Now, some translators render eternal life here as unending real life. I love that. Make a note of that. You'll keep eternal life, unending real life. Now, that captures the distinction between temporal passing life in terms of the length, it's unending, but also in terms of the quality It's different from temporal life. It's real life. It has meaning. It has eternal ramifications associated with it. Eternal value, I should have said, associated with it. Eternal life is a present possession, and it's a quality of life, God's kind of life, the kind of life that God came that we would experience. Now, this is all primarily about your focus, your perspective, and your thinking. I hope that's a takeaway. You have these two options. And the focus here is what will your perspective, what will your priorities, what will your, what will your value system be? Your focus, your perspective, and your thinking. Your preferences. Earthly-minded versus heavenly-minded. Physical realm-focused versus spiritual realm-focused. Which are you? Temporal perspective versus eternal perspective. The question is one of emphasis and value. What are you placing greater value on? The earthly, physical, temporal things have no heavenly, spiritual, or eternal value. The earthly, physical, temporal things, that kind of life has no heavenly, spiritual, or eternal value. Do you get that? Do you see that that's what is trying to be communicated by these passages? Now again, like I said, it doesn't mean that they don't have, they don't matter. The temporal realm doesn't matter. It doesn't impact your life. It does. It's not the priority. It's not the emphasis. It's not the thing that you put the greatest value on. Now, what I want to end with here this morning is that what is the natural or practical application of applying this principle? Meaning, I'm not loving my life in this world and losing it. I'm hating my life in this world so that I can experience real life, real living, eternal, eternal living, eternal life, life that is meaningful and valuable. Now, what would be the, the, the sort of the natural flow from that? Is if I'm doing that, then I should be willing to, if I'm experiencing that eternal quality and manner of living, God's kind of life, then I would want to live my life for Him. 
We touched on that a little bit in that passage in Matthew in terms of letting go means what? It means suffering for Christ. It means giving up on things in a very real and tangible way. So let's read verse 26. Because one who understands the principle from 25 would understand what verse 26 is talking about here. They would desire to serve the Lord and invest in eternity. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. What is your perspective? A servant. That's how Paul introduces himself in his letters. A bond servant of Jesus Christ, a doulos. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. The father can honor and be glorified by our willingness to invest our lives into serving the Lord. But this doesn't come first. This comes as a byproduct of making a decision to focus on eternity, eternal life, that godly quality and character of life, to focus on that, and then to prioritize that over the temporal realm. What does that look like then? This is just what it looks like. I don't start here. I start with the thinking behind this. And it ends up with this desire to want to serve and follow the Lord. I don't want to lead my own path anymore. I don't want to lead my life. And when we're honest, why would we? Just, just look back at the dumpster fire of you leading your life. Look back at how that's gone. What kind of a masochist does it take to want to keep doing that? It ain't working. Okay, I did that for you grammarians out there. It's not working. Why would you want to? I want to follow him. I don't want to follow him to prove to him something. I'm following him as a byproduct of enjoying him, trusting him, resting in him, being convinced that he's the only one that can lead to any destination I'd want to actually go. You get that? It's not cart before the horse. I would naturally then want to serve him. Not because of a sense of obligation, guilt, shame, being pressured into it. That's what religion does. Religion tries to convince you to live a certain way first. The focus is on that Sometimes to prove that you were, you're saved. Sometimes it's to actually earn God's favor. But the focus is all on you and your life. Your life is a byproduct of a personal relationship where you're enjoying the Lord, trusting him and letting his spirit work in and through your life. Now here's a couple of verses I want to share with you about this. Same general idea that this is the natural follow through to an understanding that our life, we have to give up on our life. Temporal life, we have to let go of that in order to experience the life God has planned for us. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ compels us. It motivates us. Because we judge that thus that if one died for all, then all died. And he did die for all. So then we all died too. We were identified with his death. But we, those who live now should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. This is what we mean when we say death to self and life in Christ. And here's our last passage. I have been crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. This is what we're talking about, death to self. We have to let go of the temporal realm, temporal life, in order to experience eternal life. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life, this is this eternal character and quality of life, which I now live in the flesh, that's the eternal life that we're talking about experiencing. I live by faith in the Son of God, 
I don't live it in my own direction, my own strength. Who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what my life is all about now. So you should hate your life. Don't say that to too many people because they're not going to have heard this whole message. But life in this world represents life apart from God. Life focused on and directed by self. Now in contrast to that, unending real life Remember, I like that definition of eternal life. Unending real life is provided by God and it focuses on the eternal, heavenly, spiritual realm. There is no comparison between the two. These are the choices you have, but there's no comparison. One has infinitely more appeal and value associated with it if you really think through these principles than the other. And once you realize it, you rightfully learn to hate life in this world. And I hope you can learn to do that too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we could spend here together in your word. Thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of these two natural conflicting directions that we could go with our thinking, with our attitude, with our mindset. Pray that we would choose to not cling to this life such that we would end up losing life. Pray that we would instead learn to hate this life, this temporal life in favor of the eternal life, experiencing eternal life that you make available a godly quality and character of life that will last forever in terms of value. Pray that those things could have been really clear this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here, communion. For those of you who are unfamiliar with it, Jesus, before he left, before he even died, he said, I'm going to die, and after I've died as a sacrifice for all the sins of the world, I want you to remember what I've done for you. And he suggested that one way that they could remember what he had done for them was when they would get together to eat a meal, there could be some things that would be present at most meals that would then be symbolic of what Christ was about to do for them on Calvary. And so you can make it about a ritual in a church. It's not about that at all. It's about how believers could gather together. And as they would gather together and share meals together, there would be these common elements there. One of them would be bread. One of them would be wine. Now, those two things, Jesus, just as they're sitting there, I mean, John is laying up against Jesus' chest, like reclining against him. This is an intimate gathering as Jesus knows that he's going to be crucified. So this isn't an overly formal thing. They're having a meal together. And they're celebrating even the idea that Christ is going to be the final lamb, the final sacrifice. They don't really understand it. He's, he has given them some information about it and pointed to it, but they don't really fully get it yet. But as he's there, he says, you're going to get this one day. It'll make sense to you. And when you're sitting around having these meals in the future, I won't be here. But what will be here? The bread and the wine. And he says, so I, what, what I want you to do is I want you as often as you're eating this bread and drinking this wine, I want you to do this in remembrance of me until I come back again. Now, did they know all of what he was, no, none of this made sense to them. A very little of this made sense to them. But now it does to us looking back that we could be intentional about finding time when we are together. We happen to do it the first Sunday of the month. We could do it whenever we wanted. We could do it at family, uh, at church fellowship meals, okay? We happen to do it this way. Other churches maybe have like little stations that are at church every Sunday and if you want to walk up whenever you want to when you're together with a body of believers and you want to remember Christ's death, they do it that way. Sometimes they pass things around. Sometimes they all go to the back, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is that we're doing this as a way to remember Christ's body which was broken for us 
and Christ's blood that was shed for us. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never put your faith in Christ's finished work for you on Calvary, there'd be nothing for you to celebrate or remember. We're celebrating and remembering what Christ did for us when we have that bread. We're thinking about his body being broken. When we drink the, we use grape juice, but when you, when you drink the juice or the symbolic blood, you're doing that to remember his blood that was shed for you. Now, there'd be nothing to remember if you've never put your trust or confidence in that. So I would just suggest you just let the elements pass you by and ask yourself, what's stopping me? What's preventing me from putting my faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work, his death, burial, and resurrection on my behalf? What's stopping me? And maybe today could be the day of salvation for you. Maybe you would ask yourself, what am I trusting in instead if I won't trust in Jesus Christ? I hope it's not yourself because I don't even know you that well. And I'm going to say, there's probably not much to trust in yourself. If you're really honest about your life, there's an awful lot of things that you haven't followed through on, an awful lot of things that you've gotten wrong, an awful lot of mistakes that you've made. And I'm not judging you. That's my story of my life too. I'm just saying, how could you possibly be trusting in yourself? Imagine being so arrogant as to go stand in front of the Lord one day and say, the reason you should let me into heaven is because I fixed what was lacking or what was missing in your plan of rescue. You sent your only son to pay the debt of my sin completely, and you said, it is finished. And you said, accept this as a free gift, and you can be saved. And I said, no, thankfully I'm so smart, I've realized that there's something missing about this plan, and I, need, I realized that, in fact, what you meant when you said that was, I need to do something to carry this thing across the finish line. I need to add to your plan because your plan was imperfect and I need to do my part. I need to add some religious works or religious ritual in there to finish this plan that was somewhat half thought through by God. That's what you're saying when you say the work of Jesus Christ wasn't enough. I had to be catechized, baptized, confirmed or all these other kinds of things people add to it or I had to try to be a very good person or do my part or join a church or give my money to the church And because I'm better than so many other people, that's why God should let me in. He said, none were good, none were righteous, no, not one. He said, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? There's not one just man on the earth that doeth good and sinneth not. You're not attractive to God. God looked at you in your sin. He looked at you when you were his enemy and he said, I love you anyway. I want to rescue you and I don't need your help. I'm going to pay for all of your sin and settle that score for you by shedding my blood in your place so you don't have to die. But I'm not gonna force this on you. Love doesn't force itself on other people. I'm gonna offer it to you as a free gift. And for it to be a free gift, it has to be freely given and it has to be freely received. So right where you sit, you can decide, I trust that, I believe that, I can accept that as true. And if you believe that, it's true that Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. If you believe that, that very second, you're adopted into God's family, you're saved, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit, and God says he'll never let you go. You can now celebrate and remember what he's done for you as these elements are passed. I pray that today would be that day for you. Can I have those who are gonna help with communion come forward? And we'll do that right now.
Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you for this opportunity to be intentional about considering your great sacrifice for us. Pray that we would be impacted by it in every facet of our lives, that we would remember how much you love us, that we would respond to that love, not out of, not out of a sense of obligation or guilt or shame, but just out of a sense of a love response to seeing how much you love us, that we would then depend on you and trust you, let you lead and direct in, in our lives, and we would rest. We would have a life of rest, just trusting that you can do for us what we can't do for ourselves, and there's nothing that you fail to provide, that you've undertaken to meet our every need, and that we can just enjoy you each and every moment of each and every day. Pray that if there's anyone here who isn't saved, that they would put their trust in you today. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Corinthians 11 is this passage that I was talking about. It starts with, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If you need a gluten-free option, they're wrapped in cellophane and then just hold on to them until everyone has one and we'll eat them together.
The passage continues in the same manner. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes.
So it's in your blue book, number 246. If you'd like to stand up, please. Calvary covers it all. 